0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I'm very excited today to bring Dr. Lynn Kitai to the show. She is the author of The Phoenix Lights, A Skeptic's Discovery That We Are Not Alone, the explosive, never-before-told story of the largest UFO sighting in modern history. She is also a co-producer of the Phoenix Lights documentary, She is an MD who was in practice for 35 years who actually filmed a phenomenon where orbs showed up over Phoenix 15 years ago. They just had the 15-year anniversary. Many, many people saw these orbs, but she happened to be in her bedroom that night, got a camera, and filmed them. This was a very explosive phenomenon, not only for what people were seeing and what Lynn captured but also the governor at the time denied what he was seeing and only came out 10 years later to describe the craft that he saw, the dark, enormous object. Fife Symington finally came forward to verify this. The Air Force at the time was saying that these are just nothing but illumination flares that were part of the Air Force. Everything was talked down as being not what people were seeing. For Dr. Kitai to come forward, took enormous courage because she could have lost her medical license, certainly losing credibility, which most people are not willing to do. Thank God she had the common sense and the quickness of thought to take out her 35 millimeter camera and capture the Phoenix Lights. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Dr. Lynn Kitai, to It's Rainmaking Time. Good morning. Good
1: morning. Thank you so much, Kim. Really appreciate you having me visit with you and your audience because, as you mentioned, I mean, this really is a very, very special event that to date, 15 years later, is still unexplainable. And I've gone to extremely lengths to by the logical explanation. In fact, I was Photographing and, and witnessing these phenomena two years prior to the mass sighting. That's when it started for me. I had no interest or knowledge in this topic at all. In fact, as, as you mentioned, I've dedicated my life's work to community education uh, of the reality of vital health issues. But when this fell in my lap, literally and figuratively, I had to push everything aside to find a logical explanation for what I witnessed and, and photographed. I have yet to find it. It opened up a whole new world to me that I ultimately felt... Obliged to share with the public, but what really is impactful is that I knew nothing about this. And here, both my husband, who is also a skeptic, I call us a healthy skeptic, one must be when you're a physician, saw something up close and personal that I've gone to extreme lengths to have explained to me at university level. And I did capture pictures of it, 35 millimeter pictures, two years before the mass sighting. We actually saw three amber orbs in a pyramid formation, one on top and two closely aligned underneath, just yards from our our mountainside home. We're pretty high in the mountains surrounding the Valley of Phoenix, and we have a panoramic view, a beautiful panoramic view of the city skyline, so we know what helicopters and planes and car lights and street lights and so forth look like. This was very different, and it was close, and it was a little below us, actually, behind a private gated home, which uh, I have to tell you, when I mean, we're nestled in the mountains, there is no way it was military. Besides the fact that whatever it was seemed that there was an intelligence behind it as we watched these three orbs, and I have to say my first thought coming from a video background was to grab my camera, but I didn't want to move, and and you'd hear that over and over again when people see these unexplained anomalous phenomena that you're just so mesmerized by what you're seeing, you you don't move, and I tried to take everything in mentally, the size, the shape, the color, they were about three to six feet each, depending on how close they were. They were oval-shaped, like an egg on its side, and there were three distinct objects, very closely aligned, and I call them an orb because the light did not extend outside the edge. It was self-contained and didn't reflect or or any of that. The light within each orb was a uniform amber color throughout. And when you look at a light bulb, you'll see there's a hot spot. It wasn't like that at all. It was a uniform amber color, and it didn't glare I have to say, the light within these orbs did not glare. Every other light out there glared. And I noticed that immediately, and I thought, if I don't get a picture of this, nobody's going to believe it. And I go running to the closet to grab my 35-millimeter that I keep handy to collect, I collect sunsets. Uh, we have beautiful sunsets here. And my husband calls me back to our window, and one wall of our bedroom is a window. So we get to see whatever is popping up out there, including these. And he says, get over here quick. One of them is disappearing And as we watched, in awe, the top orb, without budging, started to implode. It's hard to explain, but it's almost like a dimmer switch that starts getting smaller and smaller and smaller, as if there's an intelligence behind it doing this. And I have to admit, and I did not admit this to anyone until after the mass sighting two years later, that even after it disappeared, it seemed like it was still there. Now, where did it go? Another dimension, perhaps? Whatever. At the time, I had no idea. I just jumped out on the balcony, grabbed a picture of the two lower orbs. And by the way, if anybody's near the internet, if they want to get on the Phoenix Lights Network website, thephoenixlights.net, just Google Phoenix Lights. It usually comes up first. And goes to the photo page. You'll see the photo, the first and the last photos that I captured of this closed sighting in 1995. I shot a picture of the two lower orbs, and I have to tell you, it felt like as intensely as I was watching these two lower orbs, that there was something watching me. And going through my mind, and again, I didn't share this for two years after the mass sighting, I was thinking, who are you? What are you? Do you know that I'm here? I'd love to meet you. The next thing I remember, the left bottom orb started to disappear just like the the first, the top one. And I quickly shot a picture of that. That was the only one that turned out at the time, and that's that's posted there on the on the photo page of the Phoenix Lights website. It was so spectacular because I actually caught this thing in action, but I didn't even know who to show it to. <laughs> I I just wondered for two years what this advanced technology was doing right outside our bedroom window.
0: In the early part of your describing this, you said that it's definitely not military. Can you just share with the audience why you're so emphatic about that?
1: Well, not only are we nestled in a mountain range in a very affluent community, but it's a no-fly zone. I mean, there's no way. There's no military anywhere even close to where we are, and that wouldn't be near us anyway because we are a no-fly zone. We are nestled in the mountains. It would be dangerous for them to even be in this area. Plus, it was below us. I mean, this was not only something that I couldn't even imagine being here on Earth that we had this kind of technology, nor have we seen it, but it's been showing up worldwide for many centuries. But when you look at those pictures, and this is another thing, I mean, there is so much to this story, and, and I'll, I'll try to describe as much as I can so people can just get a taste of it, and, and hopefully they'll pick up the book, which was a 750-page journal uh,
0: seven years later. Um, i bet the editing was almost requiring psychiatric help just to so, edit it. I mean,
1: that, that's a whole other story because I pushed my entire... Medical career aside after thousands of people saw what I saw on March thirteenth that we can get to that and, and again to find a logical explanation and kept a daily diary of everything I mean I meticulously tried to document every single thing from military conversations to the media to witness reports etc and and also research the history of these, which is so fascinating and and end up with a seven hundred and fifty page journal. Four years later, went back to work to help put our younger son through medical school, and he's in the documentary. He had a couple of sightings with us. He's a neurologist now. And while I was chief clinical consultant at the Arizona Heart Institute Wellness and Imaging Center, pared down and edited down the book, to the journal to the best of what I found. So I ended up, you know, uh, finally coming forward after seven years of anonymity in 2004 with the Phoenix Light to Skeptics' discovery that we are not alone, which at the time was 230 pages and just came forward with the third edition last year with what has happened since I came forward in 2004, which is all another story.
0: You and I are going to be here for days. Right. Uh... <laughs> like I said, we could do that. That's why I hope people pick up the book. Folks, if you think this is an hour long interview, I think it's going to be a walkabout, so stay tuned.
1: Well anyway, getting back to two years before, you know, here and, and if you look at those pictures on the, on the webpage, you'll see in the background, and this is what's really important, Kim, because there is, I mean, people, this, the hard-nosed skeptics slash the bunkers that try to discredit the messenger so people won't listen to the message or look at the data, if you look at the data, it speaks for itself. They've obviously either never looked at the data or they don't care to, because in those pictures two years before the mass sighting, in the background is the same exact phenomena in a line that I, disappearing while the close ones are disappearing, that I would also capture two months before the mass sighting. And this is really important data because two months before the mass sighting was the first time that I saw these lights appear again, but at a distance. And I started whatever scientist in me or whatever felt compelled to document them on 35 millimeter, which, by the way, is the best way to analyze these phenomena other than infrared. But at any rate, here I captured the same phenomena head-on, turning into a V-shape, mile-wide, that I would also capture on video during the mass sighting. Now, it was so unnerving, and those pictures are also posted on the photo page on the phoenixlights.net website, that the next morning I called around, found air traffic controllers, and this is really important data, at Sky Harbor International Airport. Now, you asked about why it wasn't military, who confirmed that this phenomena was hovering in Class B restricted airspace. This is a 30-mile radius around the center of the airport where any vehicle that comes into that airspace, particularly a 1,000 feet altitude, which this phenomena was, must call into the tower. Nobody called in. The air traffic controllers were frantic because here it was right in airspace, and planes were coming in and calling them, what the hell is going on here? And they took up their binoculars to look, and in their own words, they described... This is six points of light, and you would hear this over and over again two months later during the mass sighting, too, by other witnesses. Six points of light, massive span, equidistant from each other, that seemed to be attached to something, but they couldn't quite see what it was attached to, turning against the wind, and one of them was a meteorologist, so he knew what he was talking about. This was over a mile wide. And then moving as a unit behind South Mountain, which is just south of the airport. And when I said, what was it? There was silence, and one of them said, "Beats me." And I said, "You're air traffic controllers. You're supposed to know what's in our airspace, and you didn't know what it was." And we kept in contact. I continued photographing these things up into and including March 13th. And for anybody out there that's not familiar with the mass sighting called the Phoenix Lights, on March 13th, 1997. While thousands of people were looking skyward for a glimpse of the Hale-Bopp comet, they also caught a glimpse of a mile to two mile wide in some very credible reports. Either these lights, these orbs that seemed to be attached to something, and some people actually saw these orbs detach from the main object, go out into the environment and then redock with it. And that's what might have happened in ninety five if you if you look at the data when my husband and I saw the close wars, because the same phenomena was in the same location in Class B airspace then, too. But other people saw craft. And if you go to the GAP page, Geospatial Animation Project, on the phoenixlights.net website, you will see a 12-year compilation. This is so interesting. From hundreds and hundreds of reports that were reported to the National UFO Reporting Center in Seattle, Washington, Arizona MUFON, Mutual UFO Network, Village Labs, which was the clearinghouse a computer lab here right near ASU, Arizona State University, and then-Councilwoman Vice Mayor Frances Barwood, who, by the way, was the only elected official that innocently asked why there isn't an investigation because so many of her constituents were asking her in May, like months later, and she got plastered. I mean, anybody that came forward really was ridiculed and laughed at by the media. But at any rate... We can get back to that, that one, but this 12-year compilation was compiled by a couple of the investigators, illustrated by Larry Lowe on the Gap page beautifully. There's eight or nine different craft that people were seeing, and this was going on for many, many hours. The, the media or debunkers or skeptics, hard-nosed skeptics, whatever, have tried to establish, even Wikipedia has it wrong, that there was two events an earlier event and a later event. There were many events. There was actually, as far as the the craft go, whether one craft could morph into looking very differently, as you'll see in the the illustrations, or a parade of different craft. Because there were multiple things happening at the same time, which the uh, investigators believe that there was just a parade throughout not only our state, but there was also reports as early as 3 p.m. in the afternoon in Arizona, 5.30 Native Americans were seeing it in New Mexico, 7.15 in California, 11.30 there was a whole air flight crew, a commercial air air flight crew, and and passengers, 140 passengers that saw these phenomena over Nevada. And at 3 a.m. the next morning, there was actually a call uh, report very detailed to the National UFO Reporting Center from an alleged crewman. We have the actual voice recording in our documentary and I also talk about it in the book who reported in great detail that this massive craft, one of the craft was hovering right over the center of Phoenix at 820 and here again the military Okay, Luke Air Force Base went crazy, and um, <laughs> uh, military jets were sent out with afterburners to intercept it, get gun camera film, whatever, and there are civilians that actually saw this happening. And the crewmen reports that as their aircraft got close, about a mile away, their instrumentation in their cockpit started going haywire, which happens quite frequently in pilot reports of these phenomena. And as they got closer, the phenomena just blinked out and disappeared.
0: Don't you think it's kind of funny, Lynn? It's kind of like the military is like using a fly swatter to a starship technology. It's well, a yes. riot. I mean, they,
1: I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, they're not forthcoming and it's time we get this out in the open and address it and accept it and
0: study it
1: scientifically so we can find out who's driving these things and and also move forward in our own evolution, and that's a whole other part of this. You've read my book. I have conversations with the military that are quite comical. I mean, they're just as curious as we were as to what went on. I mean, there was so much going on that night.
0: Do you really think they were curious? Because, see, I feel that they already knew what was going on, but they were curious well, I to just, Something you know, was going on, but they yeah. didn't know
1: what it, what it was or, or how to deal with it. And it, and even in 5.30 uh, the next morning, there was a Boeing crew that reported that they saw one of these massive craft hovering right over their tarmac. I mean, this is, you know, restricted airspace, uh, and, and, and these things are appearing and disappearing at will. I am open to anything, and if this was military, shame on them. Okay, that's number one, because they went right over people's heads. There were people that described them so low that they were rooftop level. They could have thrown a stone at it. Okay, and we're talking people. We have a couple of people in the documentary. One is a pilot, a a Vietnam and military and, and commercial pilot for over 30 years and also an artist who had these objects right over them. And they actually looked into what they described, these huge, massive, giant wells of swimming light, like gaseous kind of light, like a canister in the in the ceiling. I mean, this is 15 years later. We haven't seen any kind of technology like that. So, you know, it, it's just very suspect that it was not military. <laughs> and and yeah, it, I hear it you. came on them if they were passing over civilians throughout the state and beyond, and then denied it. And, and the other thing is, too, for months, I have to tell you, and, and you mentioned the former governor, which is a very interesting story, because for months there was no investigation, no explanation. It was uncanny, even just a public safety issue. That's why the councilwoman, Vice Mayor Frances Barwood brought it up in the council meeting, it was important, and yet there was nothing. There was not a breath of anything being done or talked about Although behind the scenes, we've learned now that there was plenty going on. But we see months later when on June 18th, a front page USA Today article. And most people, unless they read my book, they have no clue about this part of the the story. But a front page USA Today article opened up the sighting to international scrutiny. We were deluged by media from all over the world overnight. I mean, it went viral overnight. By the next morning... It was on every news station, every morning show. It was just unbelievable. And by by late morning, that very next day, June 19th, we get the, the message that there's an unscheduled press conference by Governor feist that they found the culprit to what happened on March 13th. And everybody took it very seriously. And later that day, he has his press conference and walks out one of his aides with a with a giant alien head, and made a mockery of the whole event, which really offended many, many people who knew that what they saw was not a joke, especially parents who were with children, who, by the way, were usually the first ones to see this and alert their parents to it. But at any rate, that was really disheartening for anybody that saw the real deal. And it wasn't until a month later. I mean, they had to come up with something because... Once it was out in the open internationally by the USA Today article, people started searching for hard data. And a handful of us had taken video. There's one earlier video that has mysteriously disappeared through the years. But there were four of us that took video around 10 o'clock. Two of us before 10 o'clock. My video is the three points of light, like the endpoints of a giant V or triangle. Uh, one is an arrowhead taken about the same time. And then about 15, 20 minutes later, there are two boomerang-shaped objects. Now, they're very impressive, but one of them is a little haphazard, like flares would be, so I've never used that in any of my work. But one of them is just so rock-solid. I mean, it, you just have to look at it. It speaks for itself. But those two have, be, have come under extreme fire for being flares, okay? Mine, on the other hand, was just reanalyzed by Navy optical physicist Dr. Bruce McAbee and established once again, as he did in 1998, which unfortunately the skeptics, the hard-nosed skeptics and debunkers never looked at as the, the real deal, as unexplainable near Phoenix, et cetera, et cetera, and it was seen by air traffic controllers as well in Class B restricted airspace. So there is hard evidence. But at any rate, that was the only hard evidence that they could debunk. They had to say something about that and come up with something. And whoever did, I have to tell you, was brilliant because in the video – doesn't do the lights justice. They're much smaller, they're white, they flicker, and could be mistaken by an untrained eye for being flares. Well, it wasn't until a month after the USA Today article came out, and and again, I had checked every military base, and they were more interested in my data than giving an explanation for it. And I get a call from uh, one of the heads of PR at the Air National Guard saying, oh, Dr. Lynn, do you do you believe that And uh, I think we know what those lights were back in, in March. I said, you do? She said, yes, do you believe that nobody ever looked at the log for visiting Air National Guard? And the Maryland Air National Guard was in town that week sending off military illumination flares in Operation Snowbird. Now, that's important because I came to learn that that term means, in military terms, diversionary tactical maneuvers, which... To this day, it has been a diversion, let me tell you. But at any rate, <laughs> so they may have been sending off flares somewhere, but they certainly weren't sending them off over people's heads. Right, okay. now
0: i got to slow you down for a minute. You are seriously like a starship. I'm glad that you talked about the gentleman who processed the imaging for you who was a Navy optical expert. Right. My question to you, and I have several questions I want you to address right now. I want to cut in here and hold you back for just a moment. Because he's Navy. How did he feel about providing the level of expertise he did in this area when it's kind of taboo?
1: Well, he's, he's obviously cautious. He could not say that my video was the Phoenix Lights. All he could say is it is unidentified so he has been careful now he also analyzed my pictures in 95 as we can get to the the two years earlier and came up with a very riveting conclusion that i kept private for over a dozen years because it was just so out there that i just didn't even want to go there and in my in the latest edition of my book I finally divulge it because I think, you know, I have come not to believe in coincidence, and I'll tell you a couple of them in a second that are really interesting. He has been intimately involved with this investigation, and he's also been open to analyzing, you know, other things. And you're right. I mean, just the fact that he's a Navy optical physicist, to me, sends up a red flag. But he has been extremely supportive of of my own work and my own data and has really helped uh, get the information out there as well and has supported me and my efforts. And, and you know, sure, I'm that's sure. all you can hope for.
0: Yeah. Now, it doesn't send a red flag to me, but maybe not to people well, he's listening. Military, he's so, Yeah, it's military, oh. but he's not memorializing what it is, he's confirming right. the he's data that you captured. Right, very scientific,
1: exactly. Right. And, and you know, just I, I just wanted to finish my thought from Sure. It's really important. When the PR person from the Air National Guard said that it was military flares, I said to her, when was the Maryland Air National Guard in town? She says March 1st to the 15th. And at that point, I said, were they in town in, in January? And she said, no. I said, are you sure? She said, absolutely. I said, well, I have 35-millimeter photographs, and this is really important, <laughs> of the same phenomena in the same location as March 13th, confirmed the next morning in both cases as hovering in Class B-restricted airspace a 1,000 feet altitude, and she says, you never told me that. <laughs> and then I said, not only that, but you're trying to tell me that flares, and I educated myself, to any logical explanation, including flares, that cannot keep a formation, that drift and drop haphazardly with the wind, fall to the ground in minutes. You're trying to tell me that flares stayed in a rock-solid, equidistant, mile-wide V formation and traversed the entire state for many hours. And she says, I have a call coming in. I'll get back to you while well, I'm still waiting. It's 50 years <laughs> later. So that's really important because... At that point it was like, okay, if it's flares. Now I had pictures that showed not only two months before, but as I mentioned, two years before in the same location. Somebody did it multiple times, do it again. And it took three years, right before the third anniversary. In fact, the councilwoman, Vice Mayor Frances Barwood ran for Secretary of State at the time on a platform to get answers for the Phoenix Lights Mass sighting. And one of the things she was requesting very strongly was for a reenactment. Fine, reenact it. Well, they finally announced the three Air National Guards. And I'm telling you, people that, that weren't here or haven't read my book have no clue that this happened. Three Air National Guards came to town March 7th. They were supposed to do a two-week run, by the way, uh, to send off flares to show everybody the Phoenix lights. It was a joke. If you if you go onto the news page on the phoenixlights.net website and go down to the second level, the first box there that says AZ Family Three, it's a CNN affiliate. They did a report last year which contains the footage of their flare drop. They tried to make a a triangle, it was upside down, it fell apart immediately, it had used smoke trails illuminated by the flare itself, which is what happens. I mean, it it was just, it was a, a real failure for them. And that's the only time it has ever been tried for a reenactment. It has never been reenacted or explained to this day. And that was really important to, to share because that was the only explanation they've ever come up with and it just has never flown. I mean, it's just never, never been proven. So, and they've never addressed the craft that people saw. So, you know, I mean, it's really important to say that because this is happening worldwide at a, at a faster pace. In fact, when I came forward, Kim, in 2004, the official and accepted, except for the witnesses and investigators, of course, explanation for the Phoenix Lights mass sighting, the Arizona mass sighting, was that it was merely military illumination flares. And I can't tell you how many people fit into that. I mean, it, you know, it was a logical explanation, the video kind of looks like flares, so okay, that's fine. Well, you can only imagine how frustrating for someone like myself that knew that there was so much more to the story and certainly saw these things up close and personal and knew that they were definitely not flares, how it was for me. I mean, in good conscience, how could I stick what I had in a drawer? And now, so many years later, since 2004 when I came forward, and certainly other people have come forward, including the former governor. He came forward, as you mentioned at the top, after the 10th anniversary, to say that he actually saw one of these crafts, and it was otherworldly in his own words, and he's a pilot and from military, was a huge step forward. It was very courageous for him to do that, and, and also put it to a new level, because now we had an elected official admitting that not only did he see it, but that it was not military. So That is a, another part of the story. But yeah, well, there's the world- a whole
0: fear-based piece of this that's inherent, like people are coming to this When they're ready to really deal with it, when they're ready to look beyond their credibility and stand in what they see and what they've observed and just speak their truth, period.
1: Well, not only that, but also if they learn about it. I mean, a lot of, like, you know, I always say everybody comes from a different background, from a different upbringing, from a different belief system, worldview. Some people can't deal with this. Some people don't want to deal with this, and that's okay that 's okay, Absolutely. everyone in their own time, and if they need to feed into the flare theological explanation that 's okay, but you know what that 's why I came forward to impart the data that people have a choice of looking at or not to educate themselves and to grow because this is happening, and now it 's happening worldwide at a faster pace, and people are, when they see these orbs or these triangle or V-shaped mile-wide crafts, they're equating it with the Phoenix Lights. I mean, they say, oh, there's a Phoenix Lights. Well, you can only imagine how exciting that is for me personally that we've come a long way and that people are finally opening up to the possibility that something is visiting us. Again, I don't know what it is. And most things can be explained. That's the other part of this. I mean, only a small percentage cannot. Many things are
0: misidentified. I was having lunch with my two sisters yesterday for my birthday, and i was sharing I with them. thank yeah, you thank you and uh, i hadn't seen them in quite a long time and we sat together and i had my younger sister jackie she was with her husband and their children in palm desert and they witnessed orbs ah. and they were white for 10 15 minutes and then her husband said let's get in the house immediately <laughs> <laughs> and uh, well, didn't a didn't shout out. This it. is a quick shout out to Jackie for sharing it. So, I had her tell the story to Karen yesterday at lunch, and it was very cute. It's so synchronistic that we're having this conversation today. So, you know, people get both the sightings and to observe this, I guess, when they're supposed to, and if they're supposed to as well. Well just that's like why I'm
1: sharing the the new data too, and I'll, i just as an aside you 'll like this one um, six months before the mass sighting, like i said i don 't believe in coincidence anymore there 's just too many synchronicities <laughs> that have happened since the mass sighting but um six months even before six months before the mass sighting, I was invited uh to share my substance abuse prevention education program. I have a company that produces video and workbook curriculums on the reality of vital health issues like AIDS and teen pregnancy and substance abuse. Um, that's why when this fell on my lap I felt really felt obliged to do the same for the reality of this vital issue. But it once I educated myself. But anyway uh, the Heela Bend Indian Reservation is in between, it's in the basin in between South Mountain, which is just south of the airport, and then a few miles back is the Estrella Mountain Range. And they intersect. And again, if you look at the photo page, the first picture I have there has a topography. And you can see South Mountain and the Estrella Mountain Range intersect. And that's just where the Bend Indian Reservation is. And they have one school, and I presented my substance abuse program and got friendly with them, helped them out. And right after the mass sighting, I noticed, and in science we look for repeatability, that my pictures were consistently showing that these phenomena were popping up right in that area where South Mountain and the Estrellas intersect. So I called them up and I said, you know, my pictures keep showing that these lights are, are popping up in that area. Did you happen to see anything, any strange lights on March 13th? And they started to giggle. And I said, is that funny? And they said, are you kidding? We've been looking up at them for centuries. We call them sky people, light beings. And it's part of their culture. I had no idea.
0: Now, are you referring to the guy, John, the Navajo Ranger that well, also... He's up
1: in the Navajo Navajo Nation, which has also, by the way, seen many, many things. And, and I applaud them so much because uh, the Native people, not only worldwide believe that there are other intelligences, and they're very, very welcoming of them. In fact, the uh, the, uh, Hopi Indian uh, here have protocols to invite these phenomena in, and and some of the the, uh, Native peoples believe that these orbs are ancestors, that they're spirit world. Coming to give them guidance and comfort and wisdom, and uh, the Navajo Rangers that are now coming forward just in the past year or so um, and telling their stories uh, it, uh, is very brave of them. I mean, they're finally—you know—they want to get to the bottom of it. They want to join forces with Mutual UFO Network and scientists to really um, study these things, which is which I applaud. I mean, that's 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 what I've been asking for for years, and they're now coming forward to tell their stories. In fact, they had a huge sighting the day before our mass sighting, and so it's right into the Navajo Nation where everybody Came out of their homes and sat on lawn chairs to watch these orbs spinning in, in, in counterclockwise circles for like a half an hour. And they thought that would be big news, but then the mass lighting happened and kind of eclipsed their, their sighting out.
0: Right. Now wasn't that around Second Mesa and also north of Flagstaff and a few other areas as yeah. well? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but they're happening worldwide. It's not just in Arizona, but certainly we do have, for whatever reason, well, I was going to say the, the Gila, um uh, Indians were, were native, native peoples were, were telling me that the Estrella Mountains got their name, uh, were given their name by the Spaniards because of all the history that, that they were describing of these phenomena for centuries. Um Estrella means star in Spanish and they believe, and this is where it really gets interesting, that the Estrella Mountains is a gateway to the stars. And when you look at my data, I mean, they believe there's a portal or gateway in that area. And when you look at my photographic data, it speaks for itself. It may be so. I mean, they consistently pop up in that area. So, you know, and there's other areas around. In fact, the last two pictures on the photo page are of sunsets. And I did not see this when I was taking the pictures. But what's an interesting thought is that these things are there. We just don't see them unless we're open to them or invited. In both pictures, in two different roles, Two different months, November and December of 2000, 2000, I actually captured a a very huge cigar-shaped craft or object in the same spot, okay, that we didn't see with our eyes, but it's in the negative. So obviously our our technology is starting to, to, uh, you know, get better and better where we can capture these things even though we don't see them with our eyes. So they're there. And, and that's another reason that, again, going back to the 1995 pictures and, and Navy optical physicist Dr. Bruce McAbee, uh, he had analyzed the first and last picture that I have there. And actually, this 21-page report is on is on the website, thephoenixlights.net. He came back to me and said, "How long was that close sighting in '95?" I said, uh, "A couple minutes." He said, "Are you sure?" I said, "Yeah." And this is this is also interesting. My husband, who was inside, would never talk about it. I was outside on the balcony and taking the pictures. And he would just not, he wouldn't let me bring it up. He didn't want to go there. And, like you know, it's amazing how different people react. And I told Dr. Bruce McAbee this because he wanted me to confirm the time. And he said, you have to corroborate the time. And I finally sat my husband down, and this is like three years after the close sighting, and said, you know, how long do you think that close sighting was? He said, oh, I don't know, two, three, four minutes tops. And I went back to Dr. McAbee and told him this, and he said, that's impossible. I said, what do you mean? He said, look at the pictures. I said, okay. He said, first of all, and he noticed immediately that the same phenomena was in the background in the same location as two months before in the, the mass sighting and during the mass sighting that I captured. But even more than that, he said, look at the skyline. I said, okay. Now, I would have never noticed this in a zillion years. But he was so meticulous. And again, in his scientific uh, scrutiny, he said, there's many more lights on in the first picture, groups of lights in the first picture that are off in the last picture. He said, that doesn't happen in a couple minutes. He said, I'd like you to do an experiment. He said, go out on the balcony, stand approximately in the same spot you were standing in 95, and take the skyline pictures one night every hour, the next night every half hour, and I actually took it another night every 15 minutes, and we'll see when these groups of lights start going out. Now, my husband called me out of a bath and coincidentally, it was the night before my birthday, so it was a very cool, uh, it was February 6th, uh, a very cool gift. But at any rate, he called me out of a bath, and I usually take a, a bath when we're home about uh, between 7 and 8. So let's be conservative. and will never
0: knock on your door at 7 p.m. Go ahead. Right, you got it. But
1: let's be conservative and say 8 o'clock is a starting point. The groups of lights start going out, according to this experiment, at 9 o'clock. The last picture is indicative of 10.30, 11 o'clock. Now, he says to me, can I present this case at the, this is a 98, by the way. He says, can I present this case in the upcoming 1999 MUFON Mutual UFO Network International Symposium in Washington, D.C.? I said, hey, you know, this is your baby. I would have never, ever noticed this data, Dr. McAbee, as long as you keep my name out of it. I said anonymous, and I'm talking anonymous for seven years, and he was very kind and did not mention who these pictures were from. And he presented the case in 1999 as the first authenticated photographic evidence ever of missing time. Now, I could not wrap my head around this, nor did I want to, and I never, ever mentioned it to anyone. No one.
0: How about your husband? Did you mention it to him? No. (laughs) Yeah, wow. He
1: couldn't deal with it. And finally, I did share it in my book, only because, the latest edition of my book last year, only because, again, I have come not to believe in coincidence, and there's just so many more coincidences, but I figured if I have this data, maybe it's important. Maybe it's important. How can I not share it? And maybe, I mean, now that we think about it i mean quantum physics and quantum mechanics is just starting to catch up and That's talk true. about you know b- bubble theory and string theory of 10 or 11 different dimensions and maybe this data will not only show that our concept of linear time is primitive past present and future is not what time really is
0: yeah no. well at least at the very least remote viewing gives flat evidence for that like boom, well not only that
1: but On the other hand, if there are other times and spaces along with ours, as quantum physics is starting to understand, then why is it such a leap to think that there may be other intelligences, even sentient intelligences, in those other times and spaces that we get glimpses of, again, if we're open to them or invited? So I thought it was really important to share the data now, and hopefully science will take a a look at it and it will help open up that door a little bit more.
0: You and I had an earlier conversation in our first dialogue together about this and your work, and you said that some people high up had visited you and had given you some recommendations, some people high up that were kind of scary to you.
1: I did meet people a year after the mass sighting to show them my data. They had requested seeing my, my photographic data, and I had no idea who they were until afterwards, and yes, they were very well connected to the military and whatever. They were people that I didn't want to know who I was, (laughs) but they obviously found out who I was. You know, they actually have been very supportive, I have to tell you, all the way around. Not only have they put my data in museums and have mentioned it in their own books, but they have been extremely supportive of my work. So that shows me all the more that what I have is really important, and if they're supporting it, there's got to be something to it. And the the other thing, too, that I think your your listeners would really uh, enjoy hearing about is that when I was interviewing witnesses, a number of them mentioned to me that they had had near-death experiences as children that was reawakened. By the mass sighting, and I found that really curious because I did too. And I describe my near-death experience in great detail in the book. Um, I let it all hang out. But what was really impressive to me is that I thought, geez, you know, maybe there could be a connection between all unexplained phenomena, whether it's near-death experience, out-of-body experience, unexplained aerial phenomena that have a mystical light associated with the experience. And lo and behold, just as I was finding incredible, credible data of the history of these phenomena since human documentation began, which we can get into, I was also finding credible data that at university level, studies being done at the University of Connecticut, the Omega Project by Dr. Kenneth Ring and Dr. Raymond Fowler was studying these, the connection, as well as other scientists and and very respected experts, that not only is there a connection between all unexplained phenomena in the experience itself, and I lay out very simply in the book. But the, what really really hit home was the after effect, the positive enlightenment, the awakening that happens within an individual who truly experiences an unexplained phenomena, what I started to call an up, a UP, an up, because they are an up. I mean, we, we are so transformed when you have an unexplained phenomena experience to a whole nother reality, a connectedness to the universe and to the earth and to each other that has probably never been realized before that, that now is so important. And I have to say, this transformation, this positive transformation happened in real time. And I, I should mention that it, In 15 years, there has not been one, and I can't speak for other things, but I can speak for the Phoenix Lights, there has not been one report of harm, threat, or abduction associated with the Phoenix Lights. And we're talking way over 10,000 people saw this. Quite the contrary, even in real time. As I mentioned earlier, children were usually the first ones to see this massive triangle or V-shaped thing coming towards them. And about six months before was when Independence Day movie was very popular, so we are so inundated and we address this in the in the documentary with threat, threat, threat and harm, harm, harm in our media and our Hollywood pictures and so forth that our mindset is to fear. And as soon as they saw this thing coming, they were scared, and rightly so. And they were jumping up, up and down, you know, Independence Day, Independence Day. But as the phenomena got closer, not only children but adults as well had a calmness take over them, an awe. They were transformed in in real time to where when it passed by, they wanted to chase after it. They wanted their parents to get in the car and follow it. That's riveting. I mean, that's telling in and of itself. Whoever was doing this not only wanted us to know of their presence, but also to calm us and to allay that fear that we're so deaf to because that's what we hear all the time there's so much more to this story i mean there there is a plethora of additional information and and the reason also that i go a step further is what is it where is it coming from and i saw it up close and personal you know when somebody sees something like that up close and again most things can be explained but again i got photographs of it that cannot be explained in your heart of hearts you know that it's not from here and when you also look into the rest of the story as far as the history of these phenomena i mean these phenomena have been showing up since human documentation began. There are etched-out drawings in primitive caves in Pakistan and Peru of, of long-extinct animals, and up in the sky they have what we would call today a UFO. Well, how did they know that unless they saw something that they were illustrating? There's references in the Bible and Sumerian writings and other writings around the world in India and, and, and other... Right,
0: uh, all ancient peoples have seen this.
1: Right, exactly. And then in the 15th and 16th centuries we have frescoes and and other paintings that have UFOs in the sky that people are looking at in the paintings. How did they even have that concept unless it was something they were illustrating? And then you go to World War II, and you, well, actually before that, a hundred years before our mass sighting and six years before the Wright brothers took flight, there was a giant, what they called an airship, that had movable lights. Just like the descriptions during the mass sighting in 1997 throughout Arizona, people saw these orbs detaching from the main craft going into the environment and redocking and also taking off at a tremendous speed, and there was no sound. I mean, that was what was so eerie to everybody. It was totally silent, didn't even displace the, the air. When it took off at a tremendous speed, there was no sonic boom. Well, they described the same thing 100 years before our mass sighting in April of 1897, in kansas california washington and canada they were seeing these phenomena so this was be six years before the wright brothers took flight okay so they've been around for a long time and then in, in world war ii this is a really interesting one because i conferred with dr richard haynes who's a phd psychologist who has studied thousands of pilot sightings and of course they've been you know, threaten with their careers if they come forward, but he has, he has studied thousands of pilot sightings as well as Foo Fighters in World War II, which he said himself were, you know, seemed to be identical to what my husband and I saw outside our window, are these orbs in rock solid formations of twos or threes that were flying around the aircraft during World War II and each side thought that the other side had advanced spy technology, and it wasn't until after World War II, when Japan, Germany, and the United States tried to study these phenomena, that they all realized that no one had this advanced technology. So they've been around for a long time, and there's also many stories of these orbs hovering over nuclear bases. Um, There's a, a wonderful story in 1963, I believe it was, in Montana, two separate silos, nuclear silos, and Robert Salas, who was one of the heads of one of the silos, came forward a few years ago to finally talk about this. In each case, there were UFOs at the gate, and suddenly, the nuclear silo just went totally offline, and as he described it, there is no off switch, okay, for nuclear (laughs) silos, and they were frantic, and for three hours, they were trying to figure out what was going on, and then suddenly it went back on again. Now, when you hear that story, and you also hear about these orbs hovering over nuclear bases, even even in nuclear facilities, even here in Arizona, Palo Verde, there's been reports. Uh, you know, You can only imagine the catastrophe that could take place, but there has never been.
0: Now, what does that make you feel when you hear that?
1: That they're trying to give us a message? I can't be definitive on any of this. Right. No, it's-
0: no, I understand. But, I mean, the feeling to me is... If that's so, and I can definitely receive that that's so when someone reports that, that there's also a protective presence there if they're sitting at the silos.
1: Yeah, who knows? I mean, that, you know, and they they were also seen right before the catastrophe in Japan. They were in dorms. Yeah, I
0: saw videos of that.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, what is the message? Are they just trying to wake us up that, you know, nuclear power isn't the way to go? And when you do look at the history, also you find that there were many, many more UFO sightings right after the nuclear bomb was established, and, and actually the Roswell incident took place right near the, the, I think it's the 509th Battalion in New Mexico, where the only atomic bomb was being stored. So, you know, when you, when you start to put the puzzle pieces together, it starts to make sense. All I can say is the data speaks for itself and I hope people will take a look at it, not only in my book, The Phoenix Lights of Skeptics' Discovery, that we are not alone, because I, I squeezed down the best of what I found of, of what happened here in, in Arizona, as well as and how the story unfolded, as well as the history of these phenomena, and, and the connection between all unexplained phenomena. And, and finally, the message, because whoever is doing this is not only trying to wake us up to their presence in a very gentle, non-threatening way. Again, I can't speak for other things, but... There has not been one report, not one, in 15 years of harm, threat, or abduction associated with the Phoenix Lights. But they're also trying to wake us up to the spiritual beings that we are. People have been, as I mentioned, in real time transformed, but in, in long term, till today. I mean, I have thousands and thousands of reports from people from all over the world, but particularly the, the Arizona residents that, uh, and the people that witnessed it, it, witness it here in Arizona on March 13th, 1997 I mean, some of them have gone into the Environmental movement, some into the Peace movement, I mean, it really Woke people up Not only to the reality That we're not alone in this universe And that doesn't happen With flares or blimps <laughs> If you know what I mean sure.
0: um,
1: But also To the positive potential we have As human beings And what we're doing to our planet And that's the final message, I mean, wake up to what you're doing to yourselves and your planet before it's too late. And if that isn't a reason to come forward, I don't know what is. So that really pushed me not only to to get that message out there, but also to get the message out to people that they're not alone. It's really important that no matter what it was, and, and like I said, most things can be explained, but when somebody has an unexplained phenomenon experience to them, it's real. And if you don't share it, it festers. And as a physician, that's very important to me, to let people know that it's really important, not, not, even if it's just to email me through the website, there's a contact, uh, link on, at the top of the, the uh, website page, just email me to tell me your story. It's very cathartic to just get it out there, to get it off your chest, and many people are afraid to do that because of the ridicule and the and the snickering and all that. But hopefully that will change soon. I have to tell you, um, not only in Phoenix have the media and I, I used to do health reporting for NBC in nineteen seventy six with Jessica Savage and uh, syndication grew from that internationally and they were already showing it here in Phoenix when we moved here in nineteen thirty from Philadelphia and nineteen eight I'm sorry, nineteen eighty, uh, when we moved from Philadelphia but I started doing health reporting for NBC here and then USA Cable. And the people that I worked with in the early 80s, when I finally came forward in 2004, and, and Village Labs used to call the person that had all the pictures, which I did let the pictures out there. I stayed anonymous, but I, it's not about me. It's about the data. And I, from day one, I've let the, the pictures out there. They used to call me Dr. X. And when I came forward, the people that were working at NBC in the early 80s, that were just starting out. We're now in 2004. The news director at Fox and the production manager at ABC and they were all over the place. And they really opened their arms to, to me and the data. They knew if I was coming forward, I did my homework. And the credibility was already established from the health reporting in the early 80s. And they have in, really embraced this. They have been so open. And, and so, um, kind to the people that want to come forward. And we've had some sightings here that were weather balloons or blimps, but they take it seriously and they don't snicker and they don't laugh. And I hope that, you know, this is a model for what should happen. I hope that happens elsewhere as the phenomena grows and as social networking grows. That's the other thing that's really changed this. I mean, in the, Uh, 90s when they were having similar sightings and, and getting back to similar sightings. I mean, they really started in the 60s. We have pictures from the Lubbock Lights in the 50s and then, and we have documentation in the 80s for Hudson Valley having similar sightings as well as the 80s, late 80s and early 90s and UK and Belgium and Belgium actually came to the United States and said, are you doing this? And the United States flatly denied that they were. And they're another model because they join forces with the military and uh, the um, universities and scientists and civilians to get to the bottom of this. And that's what should happen. Hopefully that will happen in the United States soon because that's, that's what's really important, that we all join efforts and we work as a team to find out who's driving these things <laughs> so we can move forward in our own evolution.
0: What's next for you, Lynn?
1: Well, I'm glad you asked because, uh, now that the book and the documentary have kind of gotten a life of the run, the documentary's won over a dozen international film festival awards, which is unheard of for a documentary and certainly one of the genre. And it keeps evolving as more people come forward. Dr., uh, astronaut Dr. Edgar Mitchell is in it. We have a 911 police operator that came forward last year to, to say that she was on that night. And even though the police said that they got only a few calls, they actually <laughs> Got hundreds and hundreds of calls, and she tells in detail that story, which is fascinating, uh, and, and others. It, it keeps evolving every every year. We keep adding to the bonus uh, features as well. We have a uh, actually a, a an original French Foo Fighter pilot who saw these things during World War II, and he tells his story and what happened when he tried to come forward. So they they've kind of gotten a life of their own, and I'm getting back to my own passion of youth education. I have video and workbook curriculums on the reality of vital health issues currently being distributed by Discovery Education, and I am now working on a curriculum for the classroom, fifth to twelfth grade, on this topic and that's fantastic that's really amazing it's out of the box i'm working with amazing amazing teachers and professors at asu on on math and the crop circles as well as a wonderful illustrator who's at disney mark and i just wonderful wonderful people who are all contributing this has been all out of my own heart and pocket and people have been so kind in in contributing to this effort to to get the truth out there and certainly who is preparing the public for what happens next? And again, I don't know what these things are. I mean, you can speculate that they're interstellar, interdimensional, which I think they are anyway, whatever they are. Um, Spirit world, time travelers, I don't know. I don't know. But there is something going on here. Advanced aerial technology is definitely gracing our skies worldwide that cannot be explained or denied any longer. And with, with social networking, in fact, I have a uh, a page on Facebook called Phoenix Lights Network, and I hope people will will join us there because I try to give updates um, whenever there's anything similar to the Phoenix Lights worldwide, and more. And I, I've had people post on there. They're seeing something in Cleveland right now. Is anybody else seeing it? Um, that's what needs to happen. Uh, the more people, and I always say, keep looking up. The more people look up more people photograph these things. And that's another thing which, which, thank goodness, in 1997, and people ask me all the time, why weren't there more pictures? Um, in 1997, the cell phone was just starting, and they were bulky and did not have cameras in them. Do you remember them? They were like real bulky. Sure, absolutely. Big and when you're outside and out and about, even though the hale comet was very clear in the northwest sky that night, and most people were looking up at the sky, and that's another interesting aside is that, When there are celestial things happening, um, there also usually is UFO sighted. Do they know? You know what I mean? That we're looking up. It happened in 1991. That's a classic case where uh, there was an eclipse in Mexico, and thousands of people were looking up, and they also saw, you know, hundreds of, of UFOs. But at any rate, it's, it's good to have a, a camera in your hand, if you possibly can, particularly 35 millimeter. But in 97, nobody did. I mean, a couple people that did have cameras, for whatever reason, when they were out and about, tried to photograph these mile-wide either formation of lights uh, that seemed to have a field in between them or or were attached to something or the craft and it was so dark and blocked out the stars and so massive that the pictures didn't turn out so that's why there aren't more pictures but the ones that I have there was no Photoshop in those days I mean, they're real and they've also been analyzed up the wazoo so that today, unfortunately there is so much misinformation out there and hoaxing which really muddies the water So besides being very well documented and one of the largest, if not the largest, mass sighting ever, the data that's out there is real. And, you know, we can say that um, definitively. So, you know, I hope people will refer and, and look at it.
0: Well, listen, I want to tell you that I've enjoyed having you on the show, and I really want to invite you back for many, many more questions. And I want everybody, if you're interested in this, to pick up her newly revised book, The Phoenix lights, a skeptic's discovery that we are not alone. Dr. Lynn Kitai.
1: And there's many wonderful books out there as well. Leslie Keen's book is is wonderful and in in, in its own right. And and, uh, Richard Dolan's book on AD after disclosure, their thoughts on what can happen. And that's why I think at this point, it's really important that people prepare themselves and educate themselves because we fear what we don't know. And when you look at the data, it really allays a lot of those fears because It speaks for itself, and as I said years ago, when somebody asked me, you know, if they weren't benevolent, okay, we'd know about it a long time ago.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time and your dedication and for joining us on It's Rainmaking Time. God bless you. Keep up the good work. Thank you, God bless
1: you, too, and happy birthday again. Thank you, thank you. I look forward to to speaking with you. All
0: the best. See you on The Craft.